I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. I'm Michael Patton, and I'm joined in the studio by Sam and Tim. Good to have you guys. Good to be back. Sorry I missed you guys last week. Well, we missed you. Yeah, well, I hope you were able to figure stuff out without me here. We managed. You did? All right. We're just wondering how you escaped from the duct tape that we used to (laughs) tie you down in your office. We told everybody about that. Yeah, you're kind of surprised to see me here today, huh? Yeah. I got off the super glue. That's right. All you have to do is put rubbing baby oil on it, Mm -hmm. and it it separates you from the leather of the seat. Good to know. (laughs) <laughs> we'll remove that from your office next time. Theology Unplugged, folks. This is a uh, broadcast, if you're joining us for the first time, it is uh, about theology, about truth, about God, but it's unplugged. What does that mean? Tim, what does unplugged mean? Well, it means it's like three chumps sitting around in a coffee shop or wherever it may be and just talking about theology and not really coming in prepared so much, just uh, three guys sitting down and just talking about theology and uh, hopefully honoring the Lord through the process. Not prepared, huh? Is that what unplugged means? Well, no. I mean, what it means is that hopefully our lives are preparing us and our just our, our daily walk with God and, and gleaning from His Word and reading other people is preparing us. But so to speak, that that three guys are sitting down and what the topics that come up, we discuss those with the idea of if if you're in an area or you don't have friends who maybe are as theologically minded as you are, that you can listen in and we can interact uh, through our website. All right, like you're getting that. too formal on me now. I thought it what do you meant mean? that it's three guys who didn't have to be afraid of saying things that made them look foolish. They could just... Well, that's right, too. Yeah, th- that naturally comes up. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about today, kind of. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, well we're, we're, we're here at the Credo House. Okay, yeah. Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma. Those of you who are in Oklahoma, stop by the Credo House sometime. If you're driving through on I-35 or I-40, running right through the middle of the country... Just take a little detour, maybe 15 minutes, and you can make it to the Credo House here. Look us up on www.credohouse.org. But it's a fun place to be. Um, let's see here. We're, we're just right around Christmas. Do we have any specials or anything going on? Well, we've just got tons of new programs coming out. We're just really excited about what's happening here. We have uh, some books coming out. We've got uh, a new Bible boot camp called How to Study the Bible. It's just a four-week small group study, 45 minutes per time uh, with the the idea that so many people believe that the Bible is true, but so few actually study it for themselves. And what Michael and I do is we go through a a four-week study on just giving you those tools of how to actually approach the Bible and study it for yourself. So that's coming down the pipeline uh, right around the time of this broadcast. All right. Well, good. Um, Listen, guys, we're going to talk about something that I talked about a a, a while back um, and uh, discussed a little bit, but I wanted to have Sam in here to discuss this as well. I think you were with me when we talked about it last time. Yeah. But it was this idea called closet doctrines. Mm -hmm. Um, Sam, I don't know if you remember anything about that. Uh, if I ever Enlighten even mentioned me. it, <laughs> closet doctrine. That's a very diplomatic way of saying I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, the, the, where it came from was that uh, I think it was Roger Olson or someone else on a blog wrote a post called Pesky – what was it called? Those Pesky Shelf Doctrines. 
Shelf Doctrines. I, I remember that blog. I think I read that. Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting blog. The Shelf Doctrines were ones that you just weren't quite so sure of. You you didn't have quite as much conviction as you might have about. And so you don't talk about them that much. You put them on the shelf because you just remain somewhat unconvinced. It's something you hold to, but you're not as convinced as other things. And so you don't take it off the shelf very much. Closet Doctrines, the way that I'm defining it, or, or let me give you another synonym. Maybe this will help. Uh, Sam, have you ever heard of the term academic agnosticism? Well, I have now. Okay. <laughs> have you ever heard? Let's see here. What is another way to put it? Closet doctrines, academic agnosticism. I can't think of another one. Why don't you give us an example? No, I'm just going to keep on. Okay, just around you're just going to keep uh, in a downward spiral, it. huh? It's not a downward spiral. This, this is, is making for a great podcast. Are you talking about like the, uh, doctrines that um, you're somewhat reluctant for people to know you actually believe those things? See, or look at this. He's getting it. Or doctrines that... Well, um, well he's getting it because you're not saying anything. No, I mean, he's just I, this, is, this is just inductive theology okay. unplugged. Oh, well, doctrines that, that you're not altogether certain about, but you don't want people to know that you have some doubts? No, that's shelf. Okay. The first one is what I'm talking about. Okay. The closet doctrines are those things that we often just don't talk about. And especially, the reason why I bring it up here is because we, we try to introduce folks to theology, to more of the academic side of many things that they may not be exposed to otherwise, to things that, uh, that, that cause you to have to really work through and think through things, um, to give reasons for your beliefs. And sometimes we get down to the essentials. We talk about the essentials. What are the essentials for Christianity? And we say, let's just focus upon those things. But then whenever it comes to some of these doctrines that the Bible talks about, or just beliefs, it doesn't have to be a doctrine. It can be a belief. We kind of hold back on. And, and if you can put it this way, these are the things that have potential in our circles or in the circles that we, we like to expose people to, to turn their face red. Okay. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, do you really believe that? So these are things that you might believe strongly and hold them strongly, but you're a little afraid to let people know about it? Exactly. Kind okay. of skeletons in the closet of our doctrine, I guess. Okay. So what are yours? Well, I'm I'm, I'm just... Inching into this, inching into this, so deep in the closet that you're afraid to bring. Well, let me give you some examples about this. Okay, talk talk about a friend of yours that you know that might have a particular closet doctrine. You're setting this up for something, and I talk about these all the time. Okay, you see, I'm not scared. I'm not an academic agnostic because let it fly, man. I'm not an academic, so I don't have to be that way. All Michael's doctrines are right out in the living room. (laughs) They're for there for everybody to see. None of them are in the closet. Well, it's kind of one of those things where you say, oh, do you really believe that? Yeah. You know, uh, it's easy to talk about some of the central doctrines. It's easy to talk about the resurrection of Christ. It's easy to talk about the the um, general inspiration of the Bible. It's easy to talk about uh, ideas of heaven and and the, the uh, restoration of all things. But then whenever you start getting into some of these particulars of the Bible and what the Bible teaches your face starts to turn a little bit red, and you don't really want to say, I believe those things. Now, the one that I usually bring up, and we've talked about this a few weeks ago, but in this context, I think it's good, and I'd like to hear what Sam has to say about this. I don't ever hear anybody in our in these type of academic circles, or, or very often, 
feel comfortable talking about Satan and demons. That's kind of one of those things right. that if somebody from the outside, you, as, as, as uh, I think it was Charles Ryrie who said one time that there's nothing more that an evangelical wants than to be called a scholar by a liberal. <laughs> and and you, you, t- you, you can talk about a lot of things uh, to liberals about, uh, you know, redaction criticism and, and uh, source criticism and the, the documentary hypothesis and a lot of those things that are more academic. But then you bring up, well, do you believe in demons, actual other beings that are evil, that God created, that are attempting to cause you to stumble, to cause you to fall into unbelief? Do you believe in a guy named Satan? Do you believe that he's actual? And I think sometimes we get to the point whenever we're studying these theology, and this is the reason why I bring this up, because I, I fear that you can get to the point where you don't preach and teach the whole counsel of God, mm-hmm. because some of these things just don't seem like they well, will be accepted. Well, I, I've had this very issue come up in our church in, in my preaching recently, because I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And on several occasions, I have had to preface the message by saying, uh, as you people know, uh, you typically will not hear this passage talked about in most churches because it makes pastors feel uncomfortable. Uh, They want to maintain their uh, image of respectability and being highly intelligent. And for them to come out and talk about uh, people being demonized and how we are to relate uh, to that sort of situation does not set well with them. And I did it just recently. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were, uh, we had reached uh, Mark 9, and it was, it was a story of the father who comes to Jesus' disciples while Jesus and Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his young son is tormented and demonized, and they are unable to help him. So he goes to Jesus, says they couldn't do it, if you can, would would you help my son? And here's a situation where we have a young boy. Uh, the terminology used there indicates that this uh, young boy had been demonized probably from infancy because when Jesus asked him how long has he had this problem, he says from his infancy, from his childhood. And that makes people feel uncomfortable. They say, wait a minute, a, a young child can't get involved in idolatry or sexual immorality or dabble in the occult and thus expose his life to the presence of a demon. So how did this young boy come to be demonized? And that makes people feel uncomfortable because, you know, I, my belief for so long had been there's no such thing as involuntary demonization, as if somehow uh, apart from your um, moral and conscious complicity, you could be subject to a demonic Influence, and yet here we have an explicit case of that, and that makes people feel real uncomfortable. Well, especially since it's a kid, too. Exactly. And you wonder, how did this happen? Hmm. Uh, And, of course, the text doesn't give us any help, doesn't give us any indication, but it's an example of a story. Jesus obviously goes on and uh, sets the young boy free, uh, and, and it's a, re, it's a re, and then of course chides his disciples when they say why couldn't we do that and his famous statement this kind this kind of demon meaning this level of power and intensity is not uh, cast out except by prayer uh, and most people look at that story and they just want to jump over it they want to maneuver around it 
because they don't know how to account for these kinds of things in God's Word. Um, so I, I had to give my people a little advance warning uh, before I even tried to account for the story and make sense of it for us today. And that's one of the closet doctrines, I suppose, that a lot of Christians have. And, and you know, it's not so much that it's just a closet doctrine. It's not so much that it j- we, we consciously put it in the closet. I don't think any of these things. I think you discover it whenever you're beginning to preach through it or teach through it, or you come to a particular passage, or you get asked a certain question, and there's just this long pause because you're like, well, i got to take this out of the closet for a little bit. I haven't really dealt with it in a long time. The door is pretty squeaky. I- I'd rather just skip this and yeah. move on to some other type of question. Mm-hmm. And You're like, hey, let me just tell you about Jesus instead. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's set those things aside for now because they're not quite so important. And we usually will preface it like, well, there's a lot of debate, and so <laughs> since there's so much debate, let's just not really talk about it. Yeah, let's know? not take a position. Yeah. yeah, but I I pointed out to the people. I said this has obviously very very practical relevance for you in relationship to your children. Uh, don't simply assume that because you're a Christian that they are invulnerable to the attack of the enemy. We don't know how that young boy came to be so severely demonically oppressed, but it happened. Jesus very clearly uh, in- indicates that it did. So what does that mean in terms of the responsibility that parents have for our children in terms of praying for them, um, in, in uh, terms of making certain that there is nothing in our lives as parents or perhaps even in the lives of our parents beyond us that might have opened the door into our family for this kind of influence. And some of those kinds of issues and questions make people feel real uncomfortable. Yeah, when was the last time you were sitting around a small group or talking to the grandparents and saying, hey, we think Johnny might be affected by a demon. Would you please pray with us? You know, They'd say, oh, I think you should put that back in the closet. That doctrine is very uncomfortable. Well, in conservative evangelicalism, we like parallel things. We like things that we can say, oh, this is easy. This parallels exactly what you experience every day in this area or that area. Well, in 21st century America, there's no room for the demonic, really, or the supernatural. I mean, it's all, well, instead of that, he probably has something that needs to be treated with medication. Yeah, and well, today's world, if the demonic is talked about among non-Christians, they're ghosts. You know, it's the spiritual realm, but there's no sense of it being um, hostile or intent on your destruction. It's just part of the uh, the weird world of, um, you know, the unseen spiritual realm. Just be careful with that, Sam. That's a shelf doctrine of this guy over here. He's got uh, some weird ghost doctrines. Hey, calm down, brother. I'll, I'll get to that someday. <laughs> well, that's like in I, I the watch back. Ghost Hunters. <laughs> I know what's real. Um, bizarre. That's a key word, I think. To to speak of your view. No, just back to oh, you know, okay. backing up and pause and state the word bizarre okay. as a closet doctrine. Those things that seem bizarre. Those things that seem to find no parallel. In our normal daily experience that we can relate to with unbelievers, because we like to we like to be accepted by unbelievers. Well, and I think you you know we did a huge series on complementarianism even, and I I think that could fit into this as well. The a view of of should women be lead pastors and stuff like that. There's no you know you can't say well I don't think women should be CEOs of companies or I don't think women should have a role here or here. You know it just seems so bizarre because we can't find a uh, 
a secular, so to speak, example of this doctrine being lived out in other areas. That's right. I mean, when we begin to talk about male headship, and we say, and I personally am a complementarian, and so I believe that there are distinct roles in the sexes that complement each other. And sometimes those roles will take a hierarchy where the male is uh, um, in uh, – look at me. I'm starting to get red-faced here. You are. You're talking – struggling for terms, aren't you? It is. I just don't – I'm pulling it out of the closet and I'm finding no articulation for this because it's so dusty. That's right. Uh, hey, we just S- talked about it. Calm down. Speak on, caveman. But but it's it's those one one of those things where you look at it and you say it doesn't find a parallel in the culture. So let's just put it back in the closet. And let's say let's not talk about it. Let's talk about something else because we're trying to bring them into Christianity, mm-hmm. not our version of Christianity. And it's real easy to say. There's a lot of debate about that. I have my particular view, but let's not go there. It's not important right now. Let's skip that. Um. Anything that seems bizarre, and by bizarre, again, something that doesn't parallel the current experience within our culture makes Christianity seem too weird, makes or, our beliefs seem or too Or something weird. that might threaten your standing or credibility in the eyes of people whose respect you really want. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Nothing more that an evangelical wants than to be called a scholar by a liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit— the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. I mean, my circles that I've grown up in, uh, all of us are graduates of Dallas Seminary, and so we know how that kind of goes. Sam has no experience in this realm, so we should just move on to a different topic. <laughs> but that is one of those doctrines that can easily become a closet doctrine and and could be the reason why a lot of people are not charismatic and don't even open themselves up to it. Is this why you've instructed me never to speak in tongues on the air? Well, I just said don't talk about it. Okay. I didn't say don't speak in tongues. You can actually speak in tongues. You just can't talk about it. Well, I will if Tim will interpret, but only then. So. I can try. But those things... Sam just that, said I should get a raise. That They don't find parallel. My interpretation gifts are phenomenal. Actually, that was a prophecy. <laughs> Sweet. What about me? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting nothing from my interpretation <laughs> no, God, right now. God is no longer speaking. <laughs> uh, but those things find no parallel in our culture, and whenever they do find parallel in our culture, it's usually from something bizarre. And so we like shield it, hide it, lots of interpretation, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it among the group of us that believe the same way we do already. In our club. That, that's easy. If I believe a snake talked in the garden, then I'll get around other people who believe a snake talked in the garden. And everybody will be nodding as you talk, and exactly. you'll feel like, hey, this is good. Much easier to talk about, but then when we get out in public, it's a closet doctrine. It's something that goes up in the closet. Not saying that snakes talking in the garden have to be a closet doctrine. Not saying that you're ashamed of it, and that's the reason why you don't believe it. But the point I'm making is is that whenever we begin to filter God's Word through this kind of parallel, what do we find acceptable in culture? What do we find not bizarre? We're going to take out a lot of essential elements, aren't we? Yeah, another example that just comes to mind is the issue of the exclusivity of Christ and faith in Him alone for salvation. And uh, that is so incredibly unpopular that to suggest, even among Christians, that conscious faith in Jesus is essential for salvation, 
uh, among those who have reached a point where they can cognitively interact with their surroundings and with creation and be sensitive to the, you know, the promptings of conscience. Uh, they're okay with that as long as it's in, uh, you know, the context of what the the suburbs of uh, of Edmond, Oklahoma, or Dallas, Texas. But then you bring in the the issue of um, the uh, people in various uh, far reaches of the of the globe. Uh, where the gospel has not penetrated, where there is no uh, scriptures in their own language, and you raise the issue of, but these people are living civil lives. Granted, they may be immersed in some sort of idolatry, but they're not cannibals, and uh, they're they love their families and. It makes people feel real uncomfortable when you then start talking about the eternal destiny of those who grow into adulthood and who see God's revelation in creation. They do not, as Romans 1 says, give him thanks or honor him as God. But are you prepared to say that these people are forever cut off from the presence of God in eternity? That's an issue that you won't find... uh, uh, forthcoming out of the mouths of many Christians today because it sounds arrogant, it sounds judgmental, it sounds unloving, and yet we have to wrestle with the teaching of Scripture on this. Well, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, the the sovereignty of God finds no parallel. We like freedom. We like we can have it our way. We make the choices. We we um, everybody's equal opportunity. You know, ultimately, uh, forgiveness, baseless forgiveness, uh, is the thing that should win out and everything. So those are the parallels, and so we try to fit everything into that. And then whenever it comes to those issues, does someone actually have to hear about Jesus? Well, there's lots of debate about that, so let's not talk about it. My personal opinion is this, but it's still no lots of debate. I do that a lot. You know, I, I I will find myself a, a lot of times looking at people's face, you know, getting getting very confused as I'm talking about something and saying, but there's lots of debate about that, so let's move on real quick. Mm-hmm. And, and so you don't really end up preaching or teaching or exhorting with and, – and, and maybe maybe I could be wrong about that. I'm not saying I'm the right one and everybody else is wrong because there is a lot of debate about some of these things and a lot of things are very legitimate. But what responsibility do I have – to preach according to my convictions and to not filter it through this uh, this criteria of similarity and whether or not it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Well, because, I mean, part of our ministry is a focus on ironic theology and doing theology in a way towards peace, where we're not, our goal is not to become these arrogant people who are just trying to win every debate and bash people over the head. But at the same time, we don't want to have public opinion polls on every one of our beliefs, too, and say, well, I'll just, you know, feel this out and feel how it's being responded, and then I'll respond accordingly. You know, we do need to stand for something. And, I mean, that's what we teach here with the theology program, too, is that, you know, we want you to understand other views. We want you to be ironic in the process, but we do want you to come to somewhere where you're where you're believing God in a confident and passionate way on every issue. You know, one of the things when we talk about things, let's get back to the demons or or something bizarre such as hell. You know, talking mm-hmm. about hell. 
I, I think once we filter it through this this criterion of, and I call it kind of this criterion of similarity. I know there's a different way in which that is used in New Testament studies, but this criterion of similarity, do we find parallels in our culture and our own thinking in our society that make it easier to talk about this? The problem to me with that is that the criterion of similarity is simply what happens and what is normal, but not what is bizarre. And and let me explain. Things happen every day that are completely bizarre, but they're normal. And so they're easier to find parallels. You know, the, the conception of a baby in a mother's womb is bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. We have no clue how to really think about that. In another universe where that stuff didn't happen, we would look at that and say, boy, you believe in that kind of crazy stuff? I much prefer the whole stork delivers the baby on the doorstep version. (laughs) It just seems to make more sense. It'd probably probably be a lot cheaper, too. I I mean, everything that we do, everything that we experience every day is so incredibly bizarre that we we can sit here and discuss these things that we're talking about, that, that we have involuntary muscles working working throughout our entire body that that just work without us having to think about it that we that we live in a world that is that is full of life and full of stuff that we can't explain but it just happens every single day that you have hair that used to be growing on your head and is now receding hey, I know, got plenty it, of hair, buddy. involuntarily plenty is, of is hair. bizarre plenty I, I'll, is that a backhanded reference to me? While you're, look, <laughs> you're looking at Michael, but you really mean me. Could you uh, tilt your head a little bit? Yes. There's a shine that's blinding yeah, me. I'm aware of that. <laughs> um, but but that's that's the thing that whenever I think about these bizarre things is that just because it is normal does not make it any less. Okay, let's change the word from bizarre to miraculous. Okay, because that that's what it is. We're talking about a world that is full of incredible things from God and that we, we become so familiar with that it no longer is in the closet. It is out in front because we're familiar with it. It's no longer bizarre or miraculous because it happens all the time. But then we bring in something like, oh, there's other beings called demons. That's crazy. What do you mean it's crazy? It's only crazy because you've never seen a demon before. And I mean, if you said, "Hey, I've you know, I've been interacting with demons for the last thirty years," you know, that's not crazy because I'm I'm comfortable, I'm familiar with that. But what makes it crazy is that you're not familiar with this concept. Have you been interacting with demons for thirty years? No. Okay. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? It, mm-hmm. It's it's snakes talking. It's hell as a place of punishment existing. It's this afterlife of heaven and the presence of God. These things we don't experience right now, but it makes it no less bizarre than anything we do experience. It just makes it less normal to where we have to go to a different source, and to the degree that that source is trustworthy, we believe it. And if we believe the Bible... And if the Bible says there is Satan who prowls about like a lion waiting for someone to devour, that's not a closet. That's something that we pull out and we say, hey, this is something we have to teach. Well, just, for example, the First John 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's a, that's a shocking statement of, of inspired scripture. What does it mean? And this, and understand, this is after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus. John saying, in some sense, 
the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, how does that reality affect the way we live? I mean, the fact that we could sit here and talk about Christians who might bristle or recoil or laugh at the at the reference to demons or to this little boy in Mark 9 who's oppressed from infancy, and yet here is John in very clear, straightforward prose without any figurative language, with no symbolism. It's not apocalyptic literature. Uh, and he makes this stunning statement that in some sense there is a global influence of Satan, and we need to be aware of it, and we need to be alert to it, and yet that Christians today would want to shove that into the closet and not let people know that it's in the Scriptures, much less figure out how am I to conduct my life in the light of this truth. Hmm. So how do we how do we live because I know we we want to keep the the focus on Christ. We want to exactly. keep the essentials. We want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. But is it just that what we do is we don't go to all of our coworkers and say, you know, hey, do you believe in Satan? Do you believe in demon, demons? Do you believe in hell? But instead that we are always should we keep it in the closet? Are we okay with that? And we're just maybe more willing to bring it out of the closet and to, to speak boldly about the things that are in the closet? How, how do we go from this? What are you thinking, Michael? Well, I think when we're talking about unbelieving world out there, I mean, we, we've got to give them the gospel, you know, mm-hmm. and the gospel, that while the Bible includes lots and lots of stuff, the gospel that we give them is a risen man. You know, and that, that is bizarre. Mm-hmm. We don't really hold back on that. The reason why it's easier for us to say that is because that is the main thing that has been said over and over and over again. God incarnate at Christmas and, and Easter, the resurrection. And so they're already so familiar with this and we're already celebrating it. So it's a lot easier, but it's no less bizarre. That's right. Than, than demons. You know, it's no less bizarre than snake talking. If, if a snake talked. See how I qualified that? I, I pull mm-hmm. it out of the closet and then well, I put that, it back. There's a lot of debate on that issue, so we <laughs> don't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the point is, folks, I guess with my continued bringing this up, is that uh, not that there's not things that are open to interpretation, but that whenever we begin to filter the Bible through this this modernistic way of thinking where where it has to have some type of similarity it does it can't turn our face red or it all of a sudden is open to lots of different interpretations and we try to find other interpretations to keep our face from being red that's whenever i think it's very problematic because it's built on such a such a philosophy that i don't think people realize that they have i mean whenever you try to get rid of the creation story and i'm again not saying everybody's getting rid of the creation story just because they're embarrassed about it. But whenever you say, oh, you really believe these two naked people were running around in the garden and there was a snake that came up to them and God was walking with them, you say, why not? I mean, if that's what it was, that's what it was. It's not really any more bizarre than you sitting here in existence right now. I mean, it's just not. And whenever we begin to find alternate interpretations when we begin to shape our theology around this this area to where we want to have the the most reasonable, and I like to be reasonable, 
I think we talk about a reasonable faith. I like to be reasonable. But whenever we try to filter it through and make it reasonable, and now our presentation becomes, you know, this new trimmed tree that was that was full of God's revelation before and now is full of those things that are the most acceptable, that's whenever I have a problem with it. And again, the reason why I bring this up is because I do find myself doing this. Being in circles of theology... Being like Charles Riley, you love to be respected, mm-hmm. and, and I find myself doing that. And, and so I guess more than anything else, sometimes this is a reminder for myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, it, it's a call for each of us to examine our hearts and our motivation. And I think when we do that, we will be shocked if we're honest at the degree to which we shape our lives and, and monitor our speech on these matters according to what will bring us the greatest degree of um, approval and recognition by people from whom we want it most. We want respectability. We want to be viewed as credible. Uh, We don't want to be laughed at. Uh, We want to be accepted, as you said, quoting Dr. Ryrie, we want to be uh, considered as intellectually sophisticated, as scholars. And so the question ultimately becomes, am I driven by the fear of man, what mankind, humanity in general, will think, say, or do to me if they knew I believed such and such, or am I driven by the fear of God and uh, a reverence for his revelation and the truth that he's made known in Scripture? And when I, I think we have to constantly monitor our own motivation, the state of our own souls, and what it is that we're afraid of losing if we brought certain of these doctrines out of the closet and set them up on the coffee table in the living room. Well, folks, that's, that's, uh, I think, a lot to think about. Um, That's unplugged, isn't it? Is that unplugged? That's unplugged. All right, folks, until next week. We will um, wish you a will it be a Merry Christmas by the time this is out? Hopefully. We'll wish you a Merry Christmas for Tim and for Sam. This is Michael. This has been Theology Unplugged. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.